Everyone still looks uncomfortable. Perhaps they all remembered that old saying, power corrupts. Hello, and welcome to Second Officer Slog. I'm your host, M, and with me is regular co-host, Jackson. Hello! Hello. We're here to talk about Star Trek! Hooray! There's a big delay on that for you saying hooray. Be I'm more excited sorry. about Star Trek! Uh, yeah, so sorry, I'm all over the place. Hello, I'm very excited about Star Trek. There's been a lot of Star Trek this week. It's destroying my life. This is episode 9. The management wishes to offer a correction in the numbering of this episode. We forgot to account for the ongoing weekly Discovery podcasts. This is in fact episode 10. We return now to your regularly scheduled podcast. This one is not about Discovery. No. This is about a book. I know. And we're still episodes. doing the books as the epi- yes, as Discovery goes on, we're not neglecting our regular cast. No, we're just doing extra cast on top. So many podcasts. So, uh, since we have another one of these we're recording tomorrow about Discovery Episode 3, we're just going to get right into it, um, because there's so much Star Trek happening right now. There was no Star Trek forever, and now there's so much Star Trek. I mean, partly that is on us for just deciding now to read all the books. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Um, I mean, we've been reading all the books for six months now, so. It's true. And partly of that is me of going, fuck, I need to watch some more Enterprise. Yeah, you're in season three. The Zindi. I'm in season three. The Zindi arc. Yes. You know what the Zindi are now. I, that was a big thing. I didn't know. And oh my god, I'm not going to ruin it for any non-Enterprise listeners because uh, you know it's a good show. You should watch it. Yep. It's not as good as like TNG, but no, what it's is? Good. It's the best Star Trek. It's true. So today we are covering two episodes, and then I'll tell you what we got next month for episodes, and then we'll talk about the books. Whatever you know how this works. We are. Uh, talking about uh, Journey to Babel, the original series, episode two, or sorry, season two, episode 15, and Sarek, TNG, season three, episode 23. Uh, next month, we will be covering The Corbinite Maneuver, the original series, season one, episode two. Uh, and then we will also be covering Operation Annihilate, which is season one, episode 29. I picked that one entirely on the basis of its stupid name. It's a really amazing name. It has it has two dashes in it. Uh, depend. Is I hope that's how it's spelled on the title card. It is. It is. It is Operation Space Two Dashes Space Annihilate Exclamation Point. Okay, because I've seen it with just a colon, and that's no. no that's some basic shit. If, yeah. if we could do this properly, get me the two dashes yeah. Annihilate. Yep. It's the season finale of ep- season one of the original series. Yes. Good, How much do good, you want to bet nothing of note happens that makes it different than any other episode? Because it's still Star Trek. I mean, nothing of note happens in TOS. Yeah. Uh, anyway, before we get into those, the book uh, for the second half of this is the third Mission Gamma book of the DS9 relaunch. It is called Cathedral. It is written by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles. Uh, you know, of co- as usual, if you do not want to know any spoilers about DS9, don't listen to the second half of this podcast. But, you know, you'll know because there'll be a DS9 theme and that's when you need to, like, turn it off. Next month, we are reading I Don't Have That Third or That Fourth Book Up. Jackson, do you know what it's called off the top of your head? 
Uh, oh, I found lesser it. Evil? It is Lesser Evil, written yes! by Robert Simpson. It will be the last of the Mission Gamma books. We'll be done. Yes, we're going to take a break from DS9 after that because we've been drowning in DS9. Yep. And uh, we need a break before we get into more DS9. <laughs> uh, we, we are close to the end of this first DS9 stretch, and, uh, from what I can tell. The, the, the problem is the DS9 relaunch like came before nemesis so there's just a period where it's all ds9 books but eventually we'll hit the like post nemesis books and we'll be bouncing between series a bit more anyway uh we are going to take our break and we'll be back with the episodes episode is journey to babel this is season two episode 15 of the original series this came out 17th of november 1967 it was written by dc fontana it is directed by joseph pevney this happens in the year 2268 in it the enterprise is in orbit around vulcan to pick up an amb- delegation of ambassadors to go to babel uh with a bunch of everyone else uh, from the federation to negotiate whether or not the planet Corridon is going to join the Federation, because they have a bunch of dilithium, and uh, they need protection, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the Vulcans come on board, and it's Sarek and Amanda, and they don't. no one knows who they are, and they're like, oh, this unapproachable Vulcan, and Kirk's like, hey, Spock, why don't you go down and meet your father? And Spock's like, Captain, these are my parents. And uh, Sarek's very cold, and they have a problem, and there's this weird, like... All of these uh, ambassadors are, like, arguing with each other and sniping each other about whether or not they should let Cordon in, blah, blah, blah. And a Tellarite turns up dead, and they're like, oh, maybe it was the... It may, like, uh, suspicions are put on Sarek. Meanwhile, Sarek has a disease, right? I watched this a week ago, so he's got, like, yes, some sort of, uh, like, virus. He has a heart defect, yes. A yes. heart defect. Um, yes. And they, they suspect it's been triggered by something, right? Yes. Yeah, and they're like, he needs a transfusion, and the only person who has that type of blood is Spock, and Spock's like, well, I can't do it, I do not like my father, blah, blah, blah. Also, <laughs> it's, like, dangerous, uh, and then they, they try to convince Spock to do it, and meanwhile, the, like, the whatever's going on killing ambassadors attacks Kirk, and Kirk is stabbed, and now Spock can't do it because he has to control the ship, and no one else is capable of doing it, even though there's plenty of people who can control the ship. Like Scotty, which is a, who's apparently third in line, which given how things went when they were uh, where Scotty took the ship and was like not answering distress calls. Maybe Je- Scotty's the wrong person to be third in command of the starship. I mean, it, that, it worked out fine then and it's worked out fine now. I don't trust Scotty commanding a starship. That's what I'm saying. I, I, well, look. Anyway, it turns out one of the Andorian delegates is actually not an Andorian. He's a spy. I don't remember. He's a spy. Do they say what he's... Is he, like, from a race or something? Uh, no, because they... So, 
the other the B plot of this episode is a ship is approaching Enterprise that is like better and cooler, but no one really knows what it's doing. Uh, and it turns out this fake Andorian has uh, weapons and transceivers hidden in his prosthetics, uh, communicating yes. with this ship. Um, also, they are Orions. Yes. Well, that's a, that's the big reveal at the end. Yes. Right. Uh, but I wanted to know if that Andorian faker was somebody. And yes, he's an Orion. Yes, he is. Uh, I, I think he's an Orion. Or he's working for the Orions. I don't remember how specific it was. Because the, the, the... Memory Alpha says they are Orions. Yes, because basically... Uh, all the day is saved as <laughs> the plan Kirk has, which is amazingly dumb, is he is going to go to the bridge and pretend like he's not like recovering from awful surgery and act like he's not in pain and go, I'm fine, and order Spock to go down to the to the sick bay and do this uh, transplant. Meanwhile, the second that happens, he's going to then transfer command to Scotty and go back to sick bay, but like under disguise and go to his quarters. Um, but this is interrupted by the Orions having an attack and they figure out how to do it and everything is fine and then they discover this Andorian is not an Andorian and he commits suicide, the ship commits suicide and everyone avoids capture. But that actually doesn't matter because once the plot is resolved, it ends in a Looney Tunes comedy moment as with both Kirk... Uh, with, ah, with Kirk, Jesus. With both Kirk and Spock... Um, uh, like indisposed, uh, Dr. McCoy literally turns to the camera and goes, uh, I finally got the last word. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, it, the line is specifically, Well, what do you know? I finally got the last <laughs> word. And he grins and then it cuts to credits. Yeah, no, it's Looney Tunes. That's all, folks. It's great. So, yeah, this episode is very silly honestly like it's places like oh a murder mystery this very important delegation here's all the races of the federation coming together it's like the first time you see tellerites and andorians and stuff uh, but in actuality it's just a bunch of costumes gr like sniping at each other and then Sarek being like how can you out, out sass spock and he does a very good job of it it's a good time it is mark much oh you got Mark Leonard back from his role as the Romulan commander. They liked him so much, they brought him back to be Spock's dad. Oh, he's really good as a Romulan commander. Yep. And now he's Spock's dad. Yep. They had to artificially age him up because he did not look old enough. Good. Good, good, good. And he looks almost no different than when he appears in TNG like 25 years later. No, he looks older in TNG. He does, but like... It, it's remarkable how well he aged. If I aged that well from the 60s to the 80s, I would be impressed with myself. Yeah, it's not that he doesn't age, but the aging is good. It is good. Yeah. He's he's done well. Yeah. But yeah, no, Sarek's there and is just the coldest dad. He's like, no wonder Spock has problems. Uh, yes, they they both like spend half the episode trying to like out Vulcan each other, which just means who can be a shithead under the guise of logic <laughs> the yep. most. How can I justify my emotional aloofness? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. The Vulcans are so extra. Yep. Well, also, uh, Sarek is... Apparently, he's upset that his son did not join the Vulcan Science Academy and said went into Starfleet. Yes. Uh, Spock's mom, Amanda, Amanda. Yes, it's Amanda. Dad does not care. She's like, no, I love my son. She like... In in, in engineering, Spock's just sitting there and she comes up and she's like, how's it doing? And... Uh, Sarek's like, wife, attend to me. And they do their hand finger touching thing. He does say, Borat voice my wife when he needs anyone. <laughs> well, specifically yes. his wife. <laughs> I mean, he does introduce her as she who is my wife. It's just a Vulcan. 
but yes. the, the future has ruined it because now it's just my wife. <laughs> oh, he does it in the next episode as well. He just says, my wife, come here. Yeah. It's great. Uh, yeah, so he's ridiculous. Uh, the space mystery with their like ship that's way better uh, with ah, the ship that's way better than them that can like go warp 10. Weird spinny ship. Yeah. Uh, the thing with these that I always like doing when we watch these episodes, if you go on YouTube, there's a comparison of special effects uh, of every episode of the original series, because the versions we're watching on Netflix have, like, the replaced, like, CG special effects. And that ship is just, like, a light effect in the original show, and it's very silly. So Because this... it, it just looks like a photon torpedo effect. This is one of the <laughs> most expensive episodes of the original series, looking at the uh, memory alpha. One of the, uh-huh. like, little facts is that originally... Uh, Sarek is just meant to beam aboard the ship, but instead they have him fly in on a shuttle because they can reuse shuttle footage. Uh, and so that whole introduction scene was changed because they didn't even have money left over for a one transporter effect because of all the yep. costumes. Yeah. Uh, it's the first big just, oh, it's a prosthetic nightmare because we just have all these races together, and which is great because anytime we can see a Tellarite, I'm, I'm on board. Yeah, you got Tellarites who, the, the masks are so bad they don't even have eyes really. <laughs> such a bad mask. Oh, those effects changed. Uh, you've got the Andorians who, uh, man, the, the like antenna on the Andorians, I know they were always supposed to move and they're like, we could never get it to work. But thinking of Andorians as how they're depicted in Enterprise, those Andorians look terrible. They really do. And so then there's like, the paint is just paint. Yep. And then there's those like little gold people running around, uh, which they're... are the most Star Trek aliens possible. <laughs> they don't actually factor into anything. They're just in the scenes. Yep. And, uh, yeah, and then that, that shuttle effect, even in the original, is, like, a really incredible, like, miniature shot of the shuttle coming in and landing and, like, the shuttle bay doors closing. Yes. And it's a lot. Uh, that is, and, yeah, uh, yeah, Spock and Sarah comes in. Uh, Vulcan robes, not as good on the original series. No. Uh, the way that those got defined instantly in the motion picture and carried on, uh, I really like, like, late period Vulcan clothing. It's really good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, the the murder mystery is very silly because everyone's like, oh, it could be Sarek. And I guess the implication is that Sarek's a giant dick, so you're supposed to think he did it. But also, he's Sarek. He's Spock's dad. He's a Vulcan. Of course he didn't do it. There's no tension there. Like, maybe you're <laughs> meant to think that, but there's no tension there. It, But, like, it's really hard to say where the tension exists in these episodes, given that we watch them with so much, like, retconning uh, in future episodes in our heads uh like yes you're right i would like to like one day actually talk to someone who watched the original series you know back when and like uh engaged with it on that level but for Mm. me and i'm assuming more like it's about seeing the characters interact like it's spock hangs out with kirk and has some banter and goes oh i can't possibly uh command this uh like relinquish my command in these circumstances and then kirk gives him shit for that like it's all these weird interactions and the plot seems kind of inconsequential uh which I, th- I think is, like, fair, because, for example, in that um, episode with the, um, oh, whatever the one with the Romulans were called. Uh, what was that one called? Bounce of Terror. Bounce of Terror. Yeah. Like that, that one, there's actual tension in the plot that there isn't in this. Like, not all TOS episodes are just silly, goofy romps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, no, they just sure. tend to be, and we have a great time with them. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, no, the plot of this is, like, kind of inconsequential. The actual good material here is, like, all tucked, tucked in around the edges. Yes. Like, the reason Sarek doesn't want Spock to go into Starfleet is because Starfleet uses weapons, and he's like, no, like, if you care about exploration and logic, you shouldn't be on an armed starship with a bunch of soldiers. Which, you know, I get it. 
That's uh, like they mentioned, oh, Sarek's like he's he's come out of retirement for this conference, which is funny because in that TNG episode, he is about to retire a hundred years later. Uh, <laughs> yep, he's not that old. No, Sarek is uh, the fucking wrestler of Vulcans retiring oh, from their job. He really is. Yep. I love that. God, Sarek's ridiculous. Yep. And then when he's disagreeing with the Tellerite, he's like, are you threatening me? And he's like, if I was threatening you, you would be dead. That is the only logical response. <laughs> like, Sarek's very cold. Like, you'll know when I'm ready to attack you because you will feel it instantly. It's so good. And there's loads of moments like uh, the obvious stuff that happens every time there's a Vulcan in this kind of plot. That happens in both these episodes where someone will say for example you are suspected of being a murderer and then someone will say no how can you say that and then obviously Sarek as a Vulcan responds uh, they should suspect me for it is only logical for me to be suspected of being the bad guy <laughs> yeah. uh, that happens about four times across these episodes <laughs> yeah. they also joke about Spock's teddy bear who is a Vulcan Salot which is a giant like monster I don't know it's very silly the way Vulcan is like not defined as just a exotic space planet at this point is very interesting to me. Yeah, you know, on Vulcan, the teddy bears are alive and they have six-inch fangs. Yeah. Like, what? No, they don't. Yeah. No, they don't, Spark. No, they, they, yeah, they don't. But yeah, no, it's weird because as much as the Federation is like, oh, it's these four races, it's Andorians, Tellarites, Vulcans, and humans, you never see Andorians and Tellarites because they're too expensive to do. Uh, so it's just Vulcans and humans running around. And I like how much, I don't know how Andorians and Tellarites help the Federation because they both seem like the shittiest races in Star Trek. Well, especially with like all the stuff with, uh, the Andorians, like specific reproductive process and like cultural crisis. Yeah, but also, like, even in this episode when none of that's established yet, the Andorians are like, we are an arrogant, aggressive, like, violent race. And then the Tellarites are like, we are an arrogant, aggressive, argumentative race. It's like, (laughs) why did either of you become a founding member of the Federation? We are the evil aliens, but scheming. And we are the evil aliens, but loud. (laughs) Yeah. Also, the Andorians are just what the Klingons are in TNG. Yes. Like, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's really weird knowing that, like, because of when the design of the Klingons happened, because of how all that stuff got basically defined by TNG, that Klingons don't exist at this point, really? Yeah. Yeah, no, Klingons are a very different thing at this point. Like, even, like, Klingons being about honor is a Star Trek Three thing. Yeah. They're just kind of evil at this point, like, weird... Uh, and then they become like Russian allegory. I haven't yeah, watched enough no. TOS and like to know the specific stuff, but they just seem to be. We need an evil brown face pirates. Yep, they're just space pirates. Yeah, yep. uh, and I'm glad that like Enterprise backfills that in, and Discovery also is having some some real Klingon stuff because uh, Klingons good. You got to have the Klingons. Real Sarek stuff. Sarek on his bullshit forever with oh. his his daughter that he picked up in a like ruined uh, base, and then his human wife that he has, and the human wife he'll have a hundred years from now. He could Sarek's got a real problem. Sarek is like <laughs> I am the pinnacle of this logical Vulcan ambassador. I am truly the perfect representation of that, but. Every time he shows up, he's like, here is my new human woman of some relation who I am like going to uh, imprint my logic onto, but is secretly just like emotionally boying me because that's all I really need, but can never admit it. Yep. I don't even want Spock's blood. He's not Vulcan enough. 
<laughs> oh, the whole, the whole scene and that whole plot line about the blood thing is like, he goes, oh, we need to do a transfusion. And you go, okay, so we need Spock's blood. But that takes about five minutes full of screen time of them going through different options that they can do and two separate scenes before they go, actually, the only option is Spock's blood. Yep. And then when they're doing the transfusion, they're doing like a heart surgery on Sarek and McCoy's like doing the surgery and they like anesthetize Spock because they're like doing the blood transfusion. And so he's supposed to be knocked out, but he actually spends the entire time like looking up every time some alarm goes off in the surgery. He tries to get (laughs) up (laughs) mid-surgery. Yeah, he's just in the background constantly like trying to sit up and then being told to lay back down. (laughs) It's very goofy. Oh, it's a silly time. It's a good time. I can't believe people thought Star Trek was a serious show ever. (laughs) I know. I know, I know, right? What a cartoon. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, no, uh, this is a really good episode of Star Trek. I, I like Sarek a lot. I like what it does for everybody. Uh, it's it's weird to me because, like, as someone who didn't watch a lot of TOS and mostly was, like, informed by TNG, like, Spock and his dad and all the weird, aggressive, like, oh, Spock was bullied and then went into Starfleet, blah, blah, blah. I, that was in, like, Trek 09, I thought was, like, in mostly elaborated out for that movie and it doesn't really feel like it like that feels like a thing that could happen in this universe given what we're working with here well he mentioned like the vulcan bullies in this episode but they're very i still hate the vulcan bullies in 09 they're still terrible they still suck yeah i mean uh it would not be how vulcans bully someone i trust you have preferred new insults for today fuck off god i hate 09 so much we're gonna watch that one scene we're gonna (laughs) yell about it yep oh yeah, no, they would devise much more, like, passive-aggressive ways to bully someone. Yes, no, it's not like there are a dearth of examples of how Vulcans bully. I think that's why it annoys me. Because <laughs> Vulcan yep. bullying is is one of the most defined bits of lore of the show. That is that is how Vulcans, uh, like, I- interact with humans exclusively, almost. There is an entire episode of DS9 that I can't mention because it would ruin something so special devoted to this idea. Yep. Yeah, no, Vulcans are the universe is bully the way and they just condescend and whatever and the best part is that you feel like every human knows vulcans are full of shit yeah yes <laughs> but like in canon like mccoy and kirk are like oh they're just being vulcans whatever we're just gonna work around them yeah it's not a problem it's it's good it's a good time so, so let's move on to sarek jackson would you like to introduce sarek for us sarek is spock's dad uh <laughs> <laughs> no sarak is tng episode episode uh episode 23 of season three first aired in 1990 which means it is set in 2366 um it is written by uh well the teleplay is by peter s beagle and the story is credited to peter s beagle from an unpublished story from mark cushman and jake jacobs because fucking tng pitching was off the rails yeah they just let anyone submit scripts and they just like threw them in a blender and like i know this one had like a ronald d moore and ira bear rewrite like it's crazy uh it was directed by les landau yes what happens in this episode in this episode uh the enterprise is on uh like a mission to go to uh negotiate something with what are the what is the race the lagarans they are uh, yeah on to have a negotiation with the lagarans that sarek has basically been working for for 90 years he said this is a mysterious race that they have to use sarek's negotiation skills and so the enterprise welcomes sarek on board in order to com- conduct this uh negotiation uh, after he comes on board, though, strange things start happening around the ship. Stop me if you've heard this before on TNG. 
Um, everyone starts acting slightly out of character. This is uh, shown by one, an amazing scene between uh, Wesley and Geordie where they get into a fight about who's like better with girls, which lol. Oh, the blind leading the blind there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, uh, and in an like, actually super, like a really weird and affecting scene in a way that Star Trek often isn't, uh, Sarek comes to a Mozart recital that is being played by four, three string quartet players who we've never seen, who are like clearly expert human string quartet people, and then Data leading them because he's clearly so much better than them because they suck because they're people. Um, <laughs> before you, before like not to interrupt the thing, but yes. one of the people in that string string quartet is the oldest person <laughs> on the ship by twenty years. <laughs> just the oldest man. He's great. He just he's here and he plays uh he i think he plays violin yeah uh, and but he's ancient for the <laughs> ship he's great but he's not as good as a fucking android <laughs> uh and in this scene as the, the lights go down and everyone's watching this beautiful music and it goes on for ages and it just like Sarek begins to cry and like a single tear falls down his face and he slowly walks out and everyone notices this uh and it's like oh why is he crying and then and another scene of a uh, bar fight which erupts, and so people realize that, oh, something has heightened the, uh, like, negative emotions of people on this ship. Things are going awry. Uh, also, Crusher hits Wesley. <laughs> yes, that happens. We'll talk about that. Uh, yeah, that is one of the things that happens in this bit. And they realize that what has happened to Sarek is that he is suffering from Bendai Syndrome. Is that the name of it? I think it is. Yes. Yes, yes it is Bendai Syndrome. Syndrome. It is a, Syndrome. It is incredibly rare medical affliction like it's so rare that they're like oh there hasn't been a case in Sarek's lifetime uh but Vulcans over 200 lose emotional control it is yep. a, like a degenerative illness he is basically just he is getting old and so is like not retaining the ability to suppress his emotions in the way that he like holds true as the crucial thing he has to do as a Vulcan and that means that he can't like carry out this negotiation and then the bulk of the episode after this is trying to delicately put this to him and his staff who are either deluding him or themselves to varying degrees to protect uh from this virus and picard goes to confront him about it and eventually sarak like bubbles up in a fit of emotion and realizes oh no this is true i do have this disease and i have to something has to change but then a last-minute suggestion reveals a third solution that had not been considered as uh, Sarek's new human wife, because the old one is clearly dead by this point, but he has a new wife, and she is also human, uh, who is yep. called Perrin. Yep. Perrin comes up to Picard and says, there is, a, there is a way. If you mind meld with Sarek, then your strength could go to him, and you could deal with the emotions for a while, and we could complete this crucial negotiation. Uh, and so they do. And the negotiations happen off screen and Sarek is fine, but that just means there's like four minutes of Picard just having the full weight of Vulcan emotions for 200 years being crushed down upon his human brain. And it does not go well for him. Uh, yeah. that's, that's basically it. They, it successfully concludes Sarek and Picard will be with each other forever in their mind. Please, there's a comic that deals with this. <laughs> <laughs> yes get fucked <laughs> yeah i know uh uh and sarak flies off uh very sad and old and to go back to vulcan they're yeah. like what are you gonna do and uh keem and rose and his like human assistant is like there's not much we can do but medical science is always advancing 
obviously did not advance far enough because Sarek will be dead in like two seasons. He dies on screen though. He has another episode. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. He he shows up in uh, Reunification Part One. Because I I, I I don't remember the context much of it, but I remember the scene. I remember being very sad. He visits Sarek right before he goes to Vol- uh, Romulus to yes. find Spock. It is it is a really really bummer scene. Yeah, no, I remember it like vividly, yep. but no, because by then Sarek is like barely coherent. <sighs> Poor Sarek. Sarek's great, and this this episode's like excellent. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, so I've been watching a lot of DS9. You've been watching a lot of Enterprise. We like both of those. This episode is like why TNG is the one because the acting is so much better. Yes. Like it and has like a lot a lot of that is laid on the feet of, of Patrick Stewart, who is obviously an incredible actor, and uh and um Mark Leonard, who is great, and those two just act fucking circles around everybody forever. They're so good. Yeah. Uh yeah, no, it's a fantastic episode and um because yeah, I've been watching Enterprise and like having a decent time and I mean I've had you know issues with season three, but it's fine. It's a it's a good show, but like you watch this <laughs> and even compared to like TOS, it's on such another like it's so much more competent with what it's trying to like do. We talk a lot about the uh, TOS episodes of um, just being goofy and a good time, but this is able to like perfectly intentionally balance the silliness of Star Trek. Like the that scene where they walk into the bar fight and Worf's like, ah, oh, well, I see what you, you mean. know, because yeah, because uh, Riker's like, there have been a bunch of reports of increased aggression on the ship, and Worf's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And they walk into Ten Forward, and immediately there's just a huge like old west bar fight happening. <laughs> People throwing each other through chairs. Like O'Brien just throws someone through a table, and Worf just deadpan goes, ah, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Uh, and like that control with the like actual core of this episode which is this profound sadness at the inevitability that this guy is dying and we're like watching it happen on screen and the only real conflict is we have to make him admit that without just destroying him well yeah the the thing that this episode reveals is that he doesn't know and everyone around him knows but doesn't want to admit it and are trying very hard to protect him because like his his assistant uh gosh what is his name sakath yes. is another vulcan who's like using his telepathic powers to hold Sarek's mind together through this mission because Sarek's the only one who can do it and it's like this will be the end of his career and we want to make sure that goes out well and Keeman Drozen is like oh we need to go and like you need to be very careful we, we don't want to do any social events and so Picard just goes to Perrin and be like hey we got this Mozart concert uh that scene with them playing that music and Sarek crying is yeah. like it, it so the like shot of like the single tear running down his face is like very silly, but that episode is that scene is like one of the saddest scenes in all no, of TNG. It's it's really affecting. Yeah, uh, like because this episode understands what like the, the amount of silliness you just have to buy into in Star Trek, but the like the amount that it is driven, especially in TNG, which is like true of all my favorite TNG episodes, by this like kind of quiet underlying sadness that will eventually bubble up to the surface. Uh, is very like pronounced here, especially in that scene, especially yeah, in the no. scene where uh, Picard confronts uh, Sarek. Before before we get to that, the, the actual shot is like really incredible because like it's all of them in the front row, and you see Perrin and Saka turning to look at uh, at Sarek, and then it like Rack focuses to Deanna looking at Perrin with horror. And then she turns and follows, like, Perrin's gaze to Sarek, and Picard's already looking at him, shocked to see Sarek crying. Yep. And it's such an incredible scene of, like, the music swelling, and it's played entirely silent as, like, the Enterprise crew, like, the most empathetic members of them, are both horrified to see this happen. 
Yeah. And and like then it hard cuts to the ship in space with no monologue. Like it's a really hard yeah. cut. It's like yeah. super intentional. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, and especially as like very good. I've talked about this a lot uh, watching episodes now and like watching it in HD watching it on like the massive fucking screen that that isn't the you know old TV I used to have uh, just this very beautiful very played straight scene of everything being quiet and dark. it's a really long scene as well like that that music swells for a while before it like climaxes with the yep. um the, the thing that when you if you ever go back and rewatch TNG, which I know you said you're planning to do at some point, but yes. season three introduced like good lighting. And this episode has such great dark scenes where it's like Picard in his ready room before the mind melt is just like it is just like the the lights are down and it's just him standing at the window looking out into space. And like Sarek's quarters always really dark and Picard's room when they do the mind melt is really dark. Like there's just a lot of really dynamic lighting in this episode. And I always think of TNG specifically as like a really flat lighting show, but this episode has brings the art for the good story. Uh, yeah, no, the, the, the lighting shift to season three is real. Yep. So before we get to the dramatic stuff at the end, so the ways in which people are getting aggressive <laughs> yes! and being affected. So, uh, so Jordy and Wesley get an argument about like Wesley's got a date and Jordy's like a date. You don't think that's going to go well, do you? And he's like, well, I'm not going to stay in and read a book like you. And it's just these two boys who know nothing about women arguing about who's better knowing shit about women. And the answer is neither of them ever. Uh, and like O'Brien gets in a bar fight, which is a very O'Brien thing to do. It's also a very TOS thing to happen. It's like trouble with tribbles when they get in a fight with the Klingons. But um, that guy stole his table. You don't fucking steal O'Brien's table now. Come on. Um, and even Picard and Riker get in like a disagreement about whether they what they should do to Sarek. And so it's like, oh, this just heightens the emotions people have. Like, oh, like they're latent, like ag- like microaggressions or passive, like passive aggressiveness towards each other. Like it's turned up and expresses when they would normally be better than like to just say it. What does that say about Beverly that she just fucking slaps Wesley? <laughs> <laughs> and it's played for comedy as well. Because like every other scene basically will have this happen. And then we'll have a beat of like the characters realizing, oh, th- this something has happened here. Something is wrong. Um, like on the on the bridge when uh, that happens between uh, Picard and Riker, like they both realize that they are being affected by this. And then it calms down. There's like a moment of sadness there. But Beverly slaps Riker. Not Riker. Shit. No. <laughs> Uh, Beverly slaps Wesley, and then it just hard cuts to her talking to Troy guy, and then I hit him. <laughs> and Troy's like, "Well, a lot of people have been doing weird things lately." <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know what it says about. Um, I don't know if it's just like it was written a while ago, or you know, I don't know. I just who knows? The implications are vast. To be fair, of the entire cast of TNG, I think Beverly is the one most likely to want to slap Wesley. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> For a lot of reasons. For a lot of reasons, yes. Yeah. Uh, but it's a mess. Yeah, no, and then the scene where Picard confronts Sarek is such a bummer, because he basically has to talk his way into getting everyone else out of the room, uh, and it is very much like Picard is also a diplomat and has to, like, bend his entire will to this conversation here uh, to get Sarek to be the, at the point where he can be the diplomat to do the actual work. Uh, it's great to see these two characters that are defined by these are the ones who can talk anyone down from anything, like actually exhibiting that at each other. Yes. And how Picard ends up outpacing Sarek and it like Picard is so sad that he's defeated Sarek in this argument. Because Picard like 
the episode opens with Picard talking about Sarek as this like legend of the Federation in the way that the audience of the show over years has like that's what Picard is Picard is this huge legend Picard is this massive captain that is a figure that everyone looks up to and that's who Sarek is to Picard uh, and he has to basically convince this person who he from a distance like admires and respects and loves that they are incapable of completing the mission they've worked their entire lives for and it's heartbreaking yep no it's also uh, the thing that like defines like really good like when the vulcans are used well it's like in this way of using the repressed emotions as there is a catharsis like right there that no one can get to because it's because of the repression because of the way that the like the vulcans are written and so you just like slowly inching closer and closer to this really awful thing that you know is going to happen and you feel it throughout this entire scene which goes on a long time and the whole like it fades to black at the climax of the at the end of the act and it just oh oh the moment he realizes that he's lost it is it's a lot yep and then the mind meld happens and uh before you even see picard you see a lot of Sarek interacting with riker yes! and he like comes he walks onto the bridge and like calls riker number one and it's actually like as disturbing as picard's like mental breakdown uh yes it is uh, because, like, Mark Leonard just really carries it as being the most Vulcan again, but just casually being like, yes, number one. Uh, when we talk about Mark Leonard being a really good actor, like, that really comes through in the actual, like, big emotional scenes, but him just being this exact perfect balance of uh, Vulcan ambassador and also Captain Picard in just, in the way he carries himself, it's incredible. Yeah, it's a lot. It only lasts for, like, a minute, but it's a really intense minute. And then Picard is just screaming in a dark room with Beverly trying to like comfort him and it's so good it's a really good scene it's one of the bits like both of these two things would like that wouldn't have come across with Sarek unless uh, Mark Lennon was as good of an actor as he is um, but then also Picard's like uh, inhibiting of these emotions uh, wouldn't it, it's, like, it's really silly there's a way to read it as like comedy if it doesn't land right because he's just yelling mm. a monologue at full intensity for about two minutes uh, but because he's Patrick Stewart, he fucking nails it. Yep. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot. I really like uh, Crusher in that scene as well. Like, they yeah. have a good... They they. I like whenever they get to be, like, actually supporting each other. Yeah, no, they're low-key couple this entire show, so... <laughs> I know! There's a moment where Picard, like, walks up, and they just say hello, and Be- Beverly has a moment of, like, checking him out quickly. <laughs> yep. It's pretty good. Uh, I think that's kind of it for this episode. Yes. Uh, Sarek is interesting. He, we will continue to talk about him on Discovery, I'm sure. Uh, it's nice look play, watching both these episodes, how much they kind of inform Discovery when you know them. Yes. There's a moment where, like, before the mind meld, he basically talks about how, oh, you can't mind more with a human. They won't be able to handle it. It'll really fuck up their whole deal. Which well, we- specifically, specifically, it's a human in the condition that he's in. Mm-hmm. but it's also dangerous to mind meld humans yeah but like in the context of he mind melded with a human in order to like help her and is giving her logical advice and what she did at the opening of discovery is yeah. have the most emotional breakdown anyone has like had in starfleet and been able to like stay in control like or i can understand why sarak would feel weird about that going forward like yep. obviously it was not intentional but it backfills into that very nicely i like it a lot yeah so yeah that's sarak uh 
we're going to switch the book now. Uh, come back next month uh, if you are not going to follow along with the book for us to talk about the Corbinite Maneuver. And Operation Annihilate. Annihilate! Uh, yeah, so uh, enjoy those and come back for more DS9 after this. This month is Cathedral. This is the third Mission Gamma book uh, for the DS9 relaunch. It is written by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles. It came out 1st of October 2002. It takes place in the year 2376. Jackson, as always, where are we in the universe in the beginning of this book? Okay, right. At this point, uh, Bajor is about to be administrated into the Federation. The application has been approved. The signing ceremony is incredibly soon. Uh... Okay, what are the act? There's a lot of threads, so I gotta take a moment. But that's the big thing. Uh, Kira has been attainted. She is not in the in the Bajoran faith at the moment because she leaked a text in the first book that we read in Avatar. Yep. Um. What else is happening on DS9? Uh, Rolaren and Quark are an item now. That is happening. What is Rolaren doing on DS9? Rolaren is the security chief of Deep Space Nine. She came here after the show, after the war. Uh, yep. and has been like Odo's replacement. She fits in very well to this dynamic. It's great. Uh, her and Quark have been hitting it off because they're both very, very sad and they hate the Federation. <laughs> yep. And they're like, oh shit, we're being inducted into the Federation. I, we we hate this. We can't be here for any of this. Uh, and us have bonded over this. Uh, who else is on DS9? Because a lot of stuff's happening in the Gamma Quadrant. There's only one after. more person on DS9, really. Yeah, I mean, there's... um, Who's the other big... Uh, there's well, there's Tyranitar. There's Tyranitar. There's fucking Tyranitar. Tyranitar did not have enough to do this time or last time, but he is great. Tyranitar is a Gem Hadar sent into the Alpha Quadrant by Odo uh, to be the data of this relaunch series to learn the ways of the Alpha Quadrant to like you know prove that a peace and understanding between the Dominion and the Federation is possible that they can learn from each other and Star Trek can win because Star Trek always wins. So that's it for DS9. We have three Bajoran quote unquote characters of note. Do you know them? We have Vedic Yevir. Yeah. Who is. A, Vedic Yevir was like briefly on the show, right? Yes, he's on the show. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of characters who were like briefly on DS9, but I watched it four years ago, so. Um, yep. <laughs> uh, we have Vedic Yevir, who is a uh, high member of the faith. Uh, who is like in line, like one of the people in line to be the next Kai, not like for definite, but one of the highest ranking possibilities. Uh, at the end of the last book, he was handed a thing, just uh, this figure by um, uh, Cassidy, Cassidy Yates, Yates yeah. who is the emissary living on Bajor and has realized what he has to do. What he has to do will be explored in this book. Uh, there is also Shakar, who is Kira's old, like they hooked up a bit in this in the series. Uh, he is now the first minister, which means he's the political leader of Bajor. Uh, he is stalling talks with 
uh, Cardassia because originally they were going to try to like make peace with Cardassia before coming into the Federation rather than letting that like handle it. They wanted to address that, but he has been stalling those talks because he does not like Cardassia for obvious reasons. The other character is not technically a Bajoran, but yes, he is but everyone's favorite. <laughs> Uh, that would be Golmaset. Who is Golmaset? Golmaset is a character from a TNG episode who is like just happens to be Goldacart's brother because he was also played by Mark, cousin, oh, cousin, 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 yes, Goldacart's cousin because he was also played by Mark Alamo and is now like the political leader uh, of Cardassia in this like uh, stage where they are recovering. He is incredibly. Hey, he's earnest. just. He's just. He's just like. He's just their liaison to Bajor. He's not like in the government high up. Oh, I thought he was actually in the government high up. Okay, that makes no, no, more no, because that's that's uh, what's his face, the drunk guy. No, it's not. I thought that guy was, like, high up in the Cardassian government. Yeah, rip him. <laughs> he died in the, in the finale. Oh, did he? Okay, I don't remember. He has... He has because it's there, big... there, are, there are books about, who, like, who's running Cardassia, but it has nothing to do with any of this, and we haven't read them, so... Okay, yes, no, but no, I'm fairly sure... Like, it's been a while since we've seen the, the show, so there's, like, details of minor characters yes. we don't remember, but um, I'm fairly sure Damar is does not make it through the final assault. Okay. I believe you, but yeah, no, the implication to me is that, uh, um, why can't I remember his name now suddenly? Damar? No, the other, uh, yeah, not Dukat. What's his name? Maset. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Is that Maset is like a, like a well-regarded goal, but it's not like in the government in the way that like he's running anything. Okay. Well, he is hanging out with, uh, with Bajor trying to get this peace negotiated. Uh, He has a cool crew. Um, and he is on the like the Traeger, uh, that is his yep. ship. The negotiations kind of ended last time, but he's still hanging around near DS9. Um, that is the space of DS9 in the Gamma Quadrant right now. God, there's a lot of threads, almost as if DS9 is the most dense Star Trek. That yep. <laughs> continues in these books. In the Gamma Quadrant, we have uh, Nog, um, Bashir, and Esri, who are the characters from the show who are still there. Uh, they don't really need much introduction. They are... Basically how they were, Bashir and Ezri are still somehow together because that was how they were in the finale. The and plot armor of being canon is strong. Oh, that relationship is so doomed. And yet, it is not allowed to end by editorial decree. <laughs> to be fair, they've only been together like maybe like eight months at this point. So. About eight months, yeah. I think that's how much time has passed. But uh, we have a few other crucial characters on the Defiant who are new to this book. We have Elias Vaughn. Commander Elias Vaughn is over 100 years old. He is Star Trek Big Boss. He is one of our favorites. We love him. He's great. He has come to DS9 after having an orb experience and realizing that he wants to like explore the galaxy and not just be this like Starfleet soldier who's been doing his missions. He wants to find the truth of the universe. And so he's leading a crew into the Gamma Quadrant. He has a daughter named Prin Tenme. She is the pilot. Uh, she is a very good pilot. That is her whole thing. They had a uh, they had a whole plot line, but it's been resolved now. They are friends again. Yeah, no, it's done. <laughs> um, uh, we also have Shah, not Sh- yeah, Shah. Fucking look, the Andorian. Yeah, names no, you're gonna, to... you were, you were like, did I say Shran? No, I said Shah. That's right. Yeah, uh, he is called Shah. Uh, he is an Andorian. Um, oh no, I'll, I'll call him they because the, they the Andorians are four genders, and this plays into the plot line. He they use he they, he uses he. Like, come on. You last time said you wanted to use they. Did I? No, you were I, like, maybe you were I, close no, with me. No, I specifically said, I think I, speci- I thought I specifically said I was, I felt weird about saying like, 
man and wife or whatever or something. I don't remember what my objection was. You said that you wanted to be dealing better with gender than these books do. And I said I wanted to portray how bad these books deal with gender. Yeah, no, no. I don't – I remember this conversation, but I don't remember how I felt. <laughs> this is this is the problem with Andorians. It, yes. it needs to be written by someone with better grasp of gender than anyone who's ever written a Star Trek book. Yeah. And tragically, it was the focus of the last book. But uh, Thriss, who is one of the bomb mates, uh, Rip Thriss – Thriss uh, was yeah. tragically fridged at the end of the last book. Yeah, by her own hand. By her own hand. And like that kind of like feeds into this book, but not really. We, uh, we're, we're not going to talk about it with this because it actually doesn't matter for anything. But like the first like 10% of this book is like them talking about maybe it's a, maybe it's a murder. Maybe it's foul play. What if something's gone wrong? No, it's just suicide. It's fine. Don't worry yeah, about no. it. <laughs> Which, <laughs> they, they had to do that because the last book tacks it on so weakly. <laughs> Yep. That they couldn't even... Oh, God, it's a terrible plot line. Anyway, uh, Shah's in the Gamma Quadrant and is very sad because of uh, one of uh, the bomb mates like, committing suicide. Uh, but luckily, it doesn't really come up much. No, yeah. So you want me to cover uh, the Cathedral or DS9 first? Uh, Probably Cathedral, right? Let's do the Cathedral. So what is the plot of the Cathedral in the Gamma Quadrant? Okay, so the Defiance just out exploring. They're, like, starting to, like, come around to, like... We're we're about to turn around and head back through more uncharted space on our way back to the wormhole because our three month mission is about to come to an end. Because uh, this is book three of four, and they encounter a large, strange object. So Bashir, do they encounter the object before or after they run into the Denali? At the same time. So uh, there, the Defiant is lacking Bashir, Nog, and Ezri because they are on the right. uh, shuttlecraft. Okay. Uh, okay. So uh, they're. Uh, Bashir, Nog, and Ezri Dax are on a shuttlecraft exploring the strange object that's tumbling through space, phasing in and out of dimensions. Like, they have no idea how large it is because it is, like, a multi-dimensional object and they can only perceive three dimensions because we're people who can do that. Uh, so, eventually, objects will just, like, come up into this dimension and this thing will suddenly be larger and then be made out of different stuff and it's very dangerous. And they all get, like, affected by its, like cascade radiation or whatever happens it's very strange and something weird happens to them and they don't quite know what it is yet meanwhile the defiant is uh they encounter a ship called uh, with these people called the denali or they don't know what they're called initially but they're called the denali so i'm gonna call them that uh they're a bunch of bug people being chased by like weird plant people right that's what they call the that's how they describe the uh the other race right the yes. nizayan they're like oh they're like weird cabbage people um anyway uh they help fight off the Nazayan and they pick up all the injured uh, Denali and they can't communicate with them because they have this very strange uh, way of speaking and the translator can't deal with it and they like don't know what to do. Um, they rendezvous back with the shuttle who had this weird stuff happen, but they did end up pulling a bunch of data off of whatever that weird object tumbling through space is. It's like gigaquads and gigaquads of information some stupid star trek term for a lot of information uh it's big it, like, it fills file. it fills up a third of the defiance computer core that's how large it is and like we need to translate this maybe these aliens who are clearly around this space can help and so they get in a conversation and they, they all start working on that and they end up talking to the denali and denali are these insectoid race and they're like yes in there this is the anathema slash cathedral because the communicator it seems like they talk in a way that is like Everything has multiple meanings and the communicator just spits out both meanings. And so they are often hard to understand and it's actually depicted really well. Um, uh, meanwhile, on the ship, strange things are happening to Ezri, Bashir and Nog. As in, Nog's like, my leg itches. That's very strange. And suddenly his like uh, fake leg that had been 
he'd gotten an artificial leg in the end of DS9 because his leg was cut off. Anyway, he, like that is rejected by his body and his body starts growing a new baby leg out of his stump, which is very fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Esri, uh, ha- like, has this weird problem where, like, her stomach hurts, and then suddenly she's rejecting the Dax symbiote, and so they have to remove it, and which is an emergency, because it'll kill the trill that's joined to the symbiote if you take it out, and they take it out and put it in the goop, because, like, Dax is arguably more important than Esri if you need to save one of them, uh, or both of them will die anyway, so you, you might as well just save one. But actually, Esri's fine, and the symbiote's fine, and it's really weird. Um... What isn't okay is the patient Bashir is working on because Bashir accidentally leaves a scalpel uh, uh, on and when he goes to turn it off, he like stumbles because like everything's at low gravity because these aliens need low gravity and the scalpel like tumbles and like lands in the chest of one of the bug people and Bashir's horrified. He's like, why did that happen? How did this, how did I do this? I'm Bashir. I'm the best. And he's, he doesn't know how to remember. He's like misremembering uh medicine names and he accidentally almost kills the dax symbiote and it turns out each of them is being reverted to like their like original state by their interaction with the cathedral and what that means is that bashir is losing all of his genetic augmentation nog is growing back his leg and ezri and dax are now before they joined how they are and that's all that sounds great for like nog and maybe ezri um but it's not great because in actuality what that means is they're being unmoored in time and are moving back and forth through various realities. <laughs> the Thank you. What? <laughs> yes, they are. Mo- they are moving back and forth through alternate dimensions, not time necessarily, but they are. Mo- well, yes. So, like, that is the the key, uh, like, mystery. But the the point where it becomes a problem and not just a tragic thing that has happened is when they realize, oh, you you haven't been reverted to your original selves. That you've just been like disconnected from the truth of this reality and so you might just disappear at some point and become like either go completely into another alternate reality or just not exist in any reality and just everything's going to go all fucked up so they need to get them back to the cathedral also like bashir reverting is like actually really bad for bashir yeah it's i will talk about it once we've done the summary but i love the bashir stuff in this book yes so they they uh use the denali and like they create this transporter relay, blah, blah, blah. They science the science and they get on board the cathedral and they all have these like introspective experiences and then are alternate timelines where they weren't the way they are now and how that works. And they all confront their realities and deal with their character problems over the last couple of books. And they get back what is theirs, blah, blah, blah. And they're restored. And then they're like, well, time to go home again. And that's basically what happens on the Defiant. It's a very Star Trek plot. Yeah, no, like a, a very big space mystery thing happens. And then the bulk of the book is like character interactions and complications to this. And then the human instrumentality plot happens. Uh, and then it ends. <laughs> yep. Meanwhile, my tab does not want to load meanwhile memory alpha helpfully says like it's just like lists the storylines and one of them is just yevir and the cardassians which (laughs) this is a this is a plot line that had us both yelling yeah do you want to my chrome is like just froze right now do you want to take this yes um so uh after being like given that uh like figure by cassidy uh yavir like understands what this like figure is and what he has to do and what that is is that uh that figure is like made of a metal that is only on cardassia uh and it like is a uh sculpture of someone who is half Bajoran and half cardassian and he understands okay i have to break all the rules i have to uh like go and 
do something that I believe to be true, even if it gets me in trouble, uh, to unite Bajor and Cardassia. That is my true destiny, even if it costs me being Kai. And so what he does is he just goes to Golmaset and goes, we are on a secret mission now. You work for me. <laughs> and Golmaset goes, I yeah, sure, let's do this. Um, which is cr- crazy. Uh, and so they head to Cardassia, where uh, they go to this, like... Uh, what is it like a city that has been destroyed in the war and they're looking for something and who else could show up but everyone's favorite friend garrick uh they do not go to just a city that's been destroyed they go into uh an obsidian order base installation okay yes i remember it was like something weird because this is followers of the aurelian way which i forget what the what that was exactly yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, but basically they go... <laughs> They're like religious Cardassians, basically. Yeah, there's a lot of law. There's a lot of law. Uh, yeah. And so what he does is... Uh, do I want to get to the actual climax of this plot line right now? Cause... No, let's save it. Okay. They find a mysterious thing and everyone's shocked and Garrick's there and it's like, yes. oh, right, Garrick. I forgot about good old Garrick. And that's basically where that stays until the end of the book. Because meanwhile... Simple, simple modest Garrick, Jackson. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> it's great to see garrick again i'm like terrified that he'll actually come back to ds9 i don't need that i don't i think he's he's better not being on ds9 so meanwhile uh they're about to sign the bajoran entrance to the federation papers everyone is there uh admiral akar is back hanging out in the hollow suite drinking at vic fontaine's and tyranitar meets him and we'll talk about it but it's not actually plot relevant but it's an amazing scene where tyranitar and akar just like being tough at each other they have a macho off and it's great um they they continue to kira continues to wonder about shakar being like uh shady as shit actually shakar is just shakar akar is akar (laughs) yes right (laughs) shakar is being shady as shit um and uh, th- there's a bunch of conversation about that. What are we going to do? Blah, blah, blah. Um, Ro ha- me finds a uh, rival for Quark's affections in... Or, switch those. Quark finds a rival for Ro's affections in his guard, who's a trill. <laughs> oh, if there was a rival for some random dude hooking up with Quark. <laughs> um, who is just a trill cop, and they, like, hit it off. They're like, oh, we can be security at each other in a very cute way. But, like, we um, can be security who, like, are kind of disowned by the Federation because we're, like, too cool. We're too maverick. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very dumb. Uh, Quark and Roe have a date at Vic Fontaine's. That's also really good. Um, anyway, the the big thrust of this is that Bajor is not as united as they pretend to be because there is the Ohalaru, that's what they're called, the Ohalaru, who are a sect of the Bajoran faithful who have splintered off with the Book of Ohalu, which Kira released in uh, Avatar Book 1. Book two, actually, I think is when she released that, right? Yes, it is. But it is in that in that story. Yes. Yes. Um, and they believe that there is more truth to those Ohalu books of their prophecies, which have all turned out to be true, than the Vedics clearly messing everything up being Vedics in a Star Trek story. So, like, we need a better way to be religious. And the Vedics are like, no, you don't. This is heresy. And it's all a problem. They stage a sit-in at... Uh, at like a service on DS9, but they're like actually on every single like there's it's one yes, of many sittings right. across Bajor. because they believe that they that they need to unattaint Kira because she's just done a they like she has done a beautiful thing for the Bajoran faithful and being punished by the Vedics just shows their small mindedness, um, and uh, one of the like uh, 
front runners for Kai is also one of the Ohalaru, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of problems there. There's that sit-in that like they're like we need to call security to escort them out, and it almost turns into a fight, and then you wonder like oh like the cops are gonna call is this gonna turn violent? And Roe is careful enough that it does not do that, and it's fine. Um, but then there's also a conversation where like all of the Vedics are arguing with each other, and one of the the Ohalaru Vedic is like we're about to join the Federation. Like Vulcans don't believe in anything. Like they're just scientists. Like if you can't handle us, how are you going to handle people who don't believe in any sort of god and just think the prophets are like wormhole aliens? Uh, and Bajor clearly has problems and is probably actually not ready to be part Bajor of the Bajor has never been less ready. <laughs> um, so there's a problem. Everyone's unsettled. And then Shakar shows, or not Shakar, sorry. Um, Vedic Yavir shows up and he's like, I've got an amazing thing. And he's going <laughs> to show it to uh, them all. Yavir doesn't just show up. It's literally the signing ceremony is about to happen. There, It's like run out of time. No time for anyone to resolve these conflicts. Everything is shit. And they're going to join the Federation anyway. I guess we'll deal with it. And then Yavir shows up like, my friends, behold. <laughs> And what he has to behold is the last four missing tears of the prophets, the orb of unity, the orb of truth, the orb of souls, and the orb of destiny. There's all of them. He's got them. Uh, I imagine those all that he's like, I imagine that he's like got like a giant curtain that he pulls down and suddenly all four orbs are there and everyone oozes and ahs. And like, he, like one of the majority ministers faints and it's like very intense. <laughs> he literally has a box like covered with cloth. Like he does basically no. do that. No. <laughs> Uh, it's fantastic and you're like oh is this going to be the thing no actually there's two there's two more things one thing is unrelated because before the yeah, we'll final get, that, thing, we'll save that for last no we should do that now <laughs> okay so they're like oh the orbs this is crazy on this day this momentous day where we join the federation who could have expected cut to earth joseph cisco is tooling around his house the saddest old man oh. in the galaxy his, his son is, like, spirited away to the wormhole. His grandson is presumed dead. He is actually in the wormhole, too, but nobody knows that. He he's, knows like, that. not taking he... his heart medicine. He's, like, closed the restaurant. He's like, I just don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, he, he is real. He, it's a real bummer. Oh, poor Joe. And so he's like, oh, I'm going to go out and go. He's like, what is I supposed to do today? I'm going to go out and garden. And he goes out and gardens and he collapses. And his like assistant that was like, please check up on him every like day or two. Make sure he's not dead. Comes in and he's passed out in the garden. He's dead. Rip Joseph. Rip, Rip Joe Cisco. <laughs> Rip Joe Cisco. Uh, so I immediately went, well, that's not true. He's going to like, the, he's going to be in hospital the next book. There's no like that. If that is how Joseph Cisco dies, that is so deeply sad. <laughs> that's like, and I was like, I was like, that's so deeply sad. That's how Joseph Cisco should die. <laughs> it's like, what if the visits had just happened? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, I'm gonna start crying right now. Yeah, well. Um, and so that's the I... big sad plot line, like the big shocking sad moment, and then it cuts back to DS9. Where... So yeah, the the, the signing <laughs> ceremony is happening, and Akar has got this giant like the the paper version of the Federation <laughs> joining thing, and like, like the book is very clear. This isn't a real document. This is just to put on a wall somewhere. But they're gonna sign it. This is what you do. <laughs> And so Shakar is like bending over to sign it. And suddenly Hiziki guard, that trill cop turns out to be an assassin and like throws a dagger or something. Right. Like he shoots a knife out and it like basically almost cuts Shakar's head off and Shakar is dead and he beams out and it's chaos. Yeah. He's like bleeding on the paper <laughs> and everyone's freaking out. And Akar <sighs> throw like pulls out one of those knives from that dumb episode. We watched, <laughs> but it's not in time. In the, in the middle of like, cause the whole, the whole plot line has basically, 
specifically been about Shakar is shady. Shakar is doing some bad stuff as the Prime Minister of Bajor, or Bajor uh, and where's this going to go? How is this going to lead into him being in charge while the Federation's in? And the answer is he dies, so I guess that's not a problem now. Uh, and now we have another problem, which is someone's fucking assassinated the leader of Bajor right before he could sign the needle, right before he could sign the paper that doesn't matter. <laughs> yep. And so you just get this chaos scene. Fucking Akar pulls out that knife. Rose going, oh, fuck, what are we going to do? Kira's like, oh, shit, we have to do something. Everyone's covering everyone. Everyone's running. Everyone's screaming. Hard cut. Turn the page. Continued in Lesser Evil. Yeah. No, this book. So this book is like, of all the books we've read, I was telling Jackson as I was reading this, this is the most like a Star Trek episode in scope. But then the last 10 pages happen and suddenly it's like a ridiculous part of this book series. I mean, that's just like, that, that happens in episodes. Like, you just get episodes which are episodes and then something crazy happens because it's a season finale or something. I, very few things happen that are the leader of Bajor has been assassinated by a trill who, like, beams out all cool like. Well, it's less, it's not so much a Star Trek thing and more just a TV thing, because I think Star Trek was before the era. Like, even DS9 was kind of before the era of TV where I would expect shit like this to pop off. Django Fett rockets away and Obi-Wan jumps out of a window. <laughs> <laughs> fuck <laughs> god damn you're not wrong yep uh, <laughs> one and one star trek one star wars reference every episode every time yep. Yep. picked a good one uh this book's great like it's not yeah no it, thing, but it's fine it's but a good time. but after the last book it is it was a delight like it's the fastest read it's it's like none of the characters are badly written some of the characters that have been treated pretty poorly by these books in general are well written like bashir and esri we get some really good bashir stuff uh bashir so the thing with bashir losing his augments is like the actual probably best part of this book <laughs> Yes, uh, it's very cheesy because he has the like Hagia Sophia. I don't know how to, I don't know how to pronounce it, but the... he has a memory palace of the Hagia Sophia. Yep. But like in it is all of his information of like being a doctor back when he was first getting used to his like new abilities. And he's like, I've never visited it in a long time, but now I need to go there. And then like the doors are locked and the staircases are falling apart. And then he just starts regressing to the point where like he's like he remembers being Jules and he talks about being Jules and how he was a dumb child and he has visions of his parents and like taking him to get augmented and when he goes in the cathedral his like anime vision is of him like trying to save his childhood self from being turned into julian bashir and how badly that goes and how messed up he is about who he used to be and how he still kind of wishes he could be that child and maybe he'd actually be all right if he was just like dumb jewels again like he sees a vision of uh like he's going through all these alternate realities and he's like oh, i have to save myself from being the other me i have to save myself but then he sees like what his life would be like if he was the other him and he's not like a doctor he's not like a super like human you know crazy federation saving everyone he's just got a life and he's like married and he's got some kids and he's fine and everything's fine and he like sees this normal life and just completely breaks uh it's i love this stuff because i i i like bashir a lot i don't i i don't think any of it is like that intentional but at least personally, as someone who like has autism, I read a lot of, I project and read a lot into like the portrayal of Bashir as like a metaphor for that, uh, which mm. I think is, uh, that is definitely present here, especially in the idea of uh, 
being a person like a kid who is like different and can't fit in and so your parents like push you into this idea of no you're special and intelligent that's going to be your thing and that is a friction point when you grow up with autism because ah, oh, uh, which then doesn't one-to-one lead but there was a lot of parallels there so i really like how it tied it I, it hit me very well i really liked it yeah um and then nog has like the best time because he just grows his leg back and he's like i'm walking around i've got two legs i can dance i'm nog he's very happy about it <laughs> that's it uh, that's nog but- uh, but his vision is of like, he's facing a bunch of Jem'Hadar cause that's his big hangup. Oh, the Jem'Hadar took my legs. Those, those Jem'Hadar bastards, they took my leg. Uh, and his vision is of Tyranitar coming and he has to like confront Tyranitar and let him cut off his leg and Tyranitar picks it up and is like, be seeing you and walks away with <laughs> Nog's leg. And that's how he like reconciles his reality. And it's the goofiest thing in the world, but I love it. I love it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, these three. I, I, I want to get back to the like the way that the Bashir vision concludes because it's like different to the other two. Uh, yes, we'll do the like. The, so it starts with Ezri and well, it starts with Nogs and then Ezri's. I don't remember which way around it is, but it basically does those two first. Nogs yeah. is amazingly dumb. Ezri's is really boring. It's just her aunt, like with her family that I didn't God. remember. I had to ask you like, do we meet Ezri's family? And you're like, we yeah, we did. They sucked. <laughs> yeah, no, they're there. They're fine. But you know. Then, shockingly, I don't mean to shock you here, but after a personal crisis, she realizes that she can bring value to Dax, but also has to remember that she is Esri. I don't don't know if that's been a thing that's been like reaffirmed a million times in these books already. Before we get the resolution of Julian's arc, we get Dax, because they have to take the Dax symbiote onto this thing too. And you get a narration of the Dax symbiote like a vision of it in the like trill like slime caverns or wherever they hang out i don't remember their names because who cares about the trill uh and it's just like he's like it's i'm blind i don't like being in confined spaces ever since i was an early worm i had these visions of these horrible monsters that would come and like devour me if i was ever trapped and it has these visions of all of its prior uh hosts and he it like talks to them and it has visions of like all of the races of the Star Trek people and they're all being devoured by these monsters and it has it has this moment where it's like these monsters are real and they're coming, they're gonna affect everyone. When I get back into a person I have to tell people that these monsters are here, and I assume that is a future book, but it is very silly. I do love the idea of Dax like kind of blind, like relating to its human selves or its trill selves. Like it mentions that the serial killer one, I never remember the name of the Dax symbiote uh, host, because who cares, outside of the, the three that matter, um, was, like, put down by uh, Guard, our assassin's, like, prior host a long time ago. Yep. Uh, it was, and um, because Guard knows about Dax and asks uh, Quark, I, no, Ro, I guess, ask Ro about Dax, probably? Yes, because uh, uh, Guard is the, is the uh, assassin security yep. flirting originally there to be flirting with Rowan that plot line but that is all a decoy because he's here to fucking murder Shakar. yeah uh and dax uh the, the thing with the, the dax and Ezri one is as they both come to realize that oh we need we have stuff we need to reconcile our problems blah 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 uh Ezri and dax don't like each other and i like that a lot They're like uh, like Ezri clearly like she didn't want to be joined and she was kind of joined by necessity and it's like, okay, I guess. But I also like that Dax is like, I don't want to be in this child. Like, everyone I've been with is, like, really cool, has a bunch of neat abilities, is, like, an interesting person. And now I've got this, like, 
child in Starfleet, and I never wanted this. But Nobody I, asked for this. I like the idea that the Dax symbiotes, or not the Dax, but the Trill symbiotes, uh, because of the way the Trill society is, which is garbage, uh, are like super like snotty. Like, why are I getting the superly perfect bread hosts like everyone else gets? Gotta get this well, normal you, person. Ugh, gross. I also, I also think the implication is that like Dax is like a particularly storied and well-regarded symbiote. It's it's good. I'm getting Dax personified is great. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's a weird thing, but it's cool. Um, but then, like, so basically what happens is all these bad things happen to Esri, Nog, uh, and Dax, and they all realize that they have to let the bad thing happen to make peace with it. Uh, and then yep. in, uh, in Bashir, uh, he watches the bad thing happen to himself, but in his mind, like... Is un- like, he doesn't do that. He in fact like saves himself from getting the uh, enhancements. Yeah. Um. Because you think, oh, he has to let himself get the enhancements, and that's what like his brain is telling him. He's like, oh, clearly I'm in some kind of vision. And clearly I have to let this happen, and then I can go back to myself. But is completely unable to uh like actually like like he because he's fucking Julian Bashir. He cannot let even his a mental projection of his childhood self go through that much trauma when he could intervene, and so he saves them uh, from. Uh, the cruel fate of being like fucking engineered as a child uh, and then realizes, oh wait, that was what I had to do all along. I had to prove to myself that I, uh, like regardless of my status as like what I have in my body, I am like driven mostly by the fact that (laughs) I have this intense, overwhelming, usually problematic need to fix everything. Yeah. Uh, And I'm glad that that is the thing that is affirmed in Bashir because... uh, He's not had much to do in these books other than Section 31 Abyss. Yeah, for sure. Bashir has mostly been around to suck when he's near Dax. Yeah, and I'm glad that it remembers that, right, Bashir sucks all the time and he's not the best person, but God, he cares. Yeah. And that's the thing that like, really- carries him through. That's that's actually all that happens on the Defiant. There's some stuff with the Denali. Uh, there's a really awful thing where they... Yes, there is. <laughs> Where uh, is it? Is it Nog that starts doing it? I think Nog's the the one who does this. I don't remember who started it, but they all one did of it. the crew. One of the crew because Elias Vaughn is like really into like we're like a modern Lewis and Clark going through the Gamma Quadrant exploring space. Blah blah blah. Uh, they meet like the quote unquote hero Denali, who's like the one they're actually going to communicate with, and they don't know how to communicate with it yet because they haven't figured out the translations and stuff. And so they they like default to calling it Sacagawea because it's like oh Lewis and Clark it's our guide to the Gamma Quadrant and it fucking sucks because <laughs> the book just constantly refers to it as that and they even go so far as to say the humans keep calling it that even though they find out its name and they just let the translator do like the finder place yep they're like oh we decide on this name so the translator will like make uh, the name correct to the other ears but we can just but we that. can't be bothered we can't be bothered god it's uh, it's like it, the fact that it's completely tone death sucks because usually uh, depending on who is writing this stuff especially in DS9 uh, Star Trek can be very self-aware about the fact that the Federation is just colonialism uh, mm-hmm. but and now it's like act, like actually is but not realizing that that's not what it's sh- like that's bad <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's just like yeah what if we were colonialism yeah and you're like, no, please stop. Please go back to when you were good. Yep. Uh, which, yeah, because like the most of this book is actually really like well handled about this stuff, but it's just clearly a huge blind spot. And you're like, oh, right. Sci-fi book writers. Yep. Um, 
I think that's most. So the one thing I do, we talked a bit about how like Quark was really badly written last book and how none of his conflict really made sense. And the ways in which he was like criticizing the Federation when their actual critiques were like right there where the Federation showed up to a trading outpost with maps. (laughs) And in this book, uh, Quark is much better written. And there's a great line where he's complaining about the Federation and how he's like, I'm going to have to just go like run my own business somewhere else where he's like, the Federation are too well fed to realize they're flat broke. And it is the perfect explanation of a Ferengi's problem with the Federation. Yeah, no, finally we have good written Quark and I'm so happy. Uh, Though also, I don't know which character it is and I don't remember, but someone describes Quark as the last like bastion of Ferengi capitalism, implying that like probably within a generation, Rom is going to make the Ferengi join the Federation with all of his progressive revolution and Quark will just be the one person banging out a living with money still. Well, the thing with the Ferengi is that they're like, like, like they do a lot of this stuff, but Quark is like out here doing this in a very specific way. Every other Ferengi we've met is like getting up with schemes, doing other like, like yeah. he actually just has a bar and isn't some scheming thing, isn't some like stealing some stuff or either trying to make I things mean, better. I mean, he is, but not in the same way. It's, there's just something very mundane about Quark that isn't true of yes. the other Ferengi we meet, which you assume is just because it's episodes of television, so everyone else has to bring conflict into the plot line. But I like the implication that that's actually not true. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's just he's him. living he's living the ideology. He's like Worf in that way, where he's like, I'm going to live by my code, even if like no one else is going to in my race. Yeah, even if no one else like really cares that much or anything, it like makes things worse. Uh, yeah, it's it's good, and I I I like how it informs the stuff with uh, Rowan in this book because they have a date in uh, Vix. Yep. Um, and after me, like worrying, oh, they're gonna fuck up the Quark and Rose stuff because it's something that can easily go bad. <laughs> uh, it was handled very well. I like that. No, they have they have the perfect solution to both their problems, which is to leave DS Nine and get into business together. <laughs> but like, it it suddenly introduces something like this, like immediate tragic countdown on their relationship because there's fucking no way Quark leaves his bar that is prevented by all canon. Quark can never I mean, leave that bar. If if Bajor joins the Federation and the station becomes fully Federation, he has to leave the bar because no one's there with money anymore. There's no, there's no way Quark leaves that bar. If Quark actually leaves the SNAP, well, I'll be shocked at the like committing to that. That would be crazy. I mean, the thing is, they they have not talked to Kira. Like uh, Ro is like I'm like tells Kira I'm at once they join the Federation, I have to leave, and Kira's like I'm gonna fight this. But never have they gone to Kira and been like, hey, what happens to us when the money goes away and we all become Federation officers? Because the obvious answer is Kira's like I'll figure it out. I'm fucking Kira Norris. I run this goddamn station. Uh, Kira is the most harried right now i mean always in the show kira is very hard but now being put into cisco's shoes while the entire bajoran faith fucking hates her while the other half of the bajoran faith like wants her to like embrace being this controversial religious figure and she just wants to run the goddamn station and be left alone to drink her (laughs) ratagino yep uh it's great uh, but no, the, the stuff with that uh, that date with those two was really good because I like, uh, I like the moment where like because she hates Vic originally because this is her, uh, this is Rose's first time meeting Vic. <laughs> she more like doesn't understand at all what he is about, <laughs> which is fair. Yeah, no, it's fair. Oh. I barely understand what Vic is about. I feel like, but like Vic basically addresses the tension that has come up between like this uh, other 
uh, this like other trail she's been flirting with because she likes flirting with him because he likes fucking making Quark squirm because she's right. <laughs> also, the implication is like he's just a handsome trail man and Quark is Quark. Yep. No, that's that's uh, she just enjoys teasing Quark is what it is like. How yep. it, but like Vic is the one that realizes, oh, yeah, you two are like clearly actually meant for each other in a way that isn't just you're flirting with each other. You're going to help each other out. You'll be OK, kids, because yep. Vic's the best. Vic does not, however, know how to deal with Tyranitar when Tyranitar visits Vix. Oh, Tyranitar <laughs> does come into Vix. And asks a bunch of questions about what Vic is and why he exists in this universe. Uh, that scene's amazing. It has nothing yep. to do with the plot, but I'm glad they kept it. Yep. And then he runs into Akar, who's to, like, you go in and, uh, like it's implied that Tyranitar can tell what is a hologram, what is not. And he's like, this one guy, this giant man at the bar is clearly like more solid than the rest of them. And then that guy gets off the bar and it's like, oh, it's Akar. And he's here to ask uh, Tyranitar how many humans he killed in the Bajoran War. Except he does this by going up to Tyranitar and going like, I killed so many Jem'Hadar. You fucking have no idea. I murdered all your friends. And then nope. Tyranitar's like, all right, thanks, I guess. <laughs> and just throws it back in uh, well, Akar's yeah, face. Yeah, but he, he, like, he asked how many tr- people Tarantar killed. He's like, uh, none. I wasn't part of the war. But will your, would your response to me have changed if the answer was different? And Akar's like, well, I don't actually know. <laughs> like, the actual conversation is about what it means to have faith because Tarantar is slowly like, the more he is around humans, the more he realizes that the idea of faith is way more complicated than just the founders exist. But I, I still like how that's portrayed of him basically going, like, he doesn't understand what belief is because the things he believes are true, clearly. They're just yeah. true facts. Like, there isn't such a thing as belief because th- it's true. Like, it, yeah. it's like, how do you get through the, to someone who... Yeah, the founders exist. They made him. He's met them. Like, you know, it's a different <laughs> thing. But it's not even like that. It's like his conception of the world is such that he isn't able to like change his world or he is through these course of these books but the problem is that oh, sure. how does he acknowledge a worldview when he doesn't even realize that it is a worldview when it's just truth to him yeah but also like he was literally sent here by his god like his god <laughs> came to him and said hey go do this and then he meets these people who like believe in gods but they're not around they don't tell them anything they've never met them they don't even know if they exist like how does that even like gel with his <laughs> perception of things yeah he's, yeah, he's like oh, I, I had a chat with my god my god said i should do this like actually so when you say you're yeah. like when you say it's the work of the founders do you mean like they like called you to their room and said hey do this like happened to me or did, does that not happen no weird weird that's weird <laughs> yeah and then uh, they have a conversation about, like, I, like Trantar's like, I don't think Pedro is ready. And uh, Akar's like, well, I don't know, but it's worth taking the chance because I have faith. And maybe if they'll get in, someday Capellan will get in. And poor old Capellan 4, never going to get into the Federation because they're all busy wearing fur bras and living in tents still. <laughs> oh, I love that in the middle of this conversation about the meaning of faith, he suddenly brings up, well, you know, the ridiculous people from that one episode could get into the Federation one day. <laughs> I, I love, because we were talking about Admiral Ross, like, is Admiral Ross still alive? And yes, supposedly he's still alive, but they didn't use him. Instead, they take this character from this obscure episode of the original series nobody cares about <laughs> and made this baby that is born and given the names of our main characters, the Admiral that is guiding all of this. And it's so dumb and so good. Uh, it's, it is peak the choice that people writing Star Trek books would make. Like, get this boring human admiral out of here. What does he have to do with anything? Nothing. Who cares? Leonard James Akar. (laughs) 
Oh, uh, it's it's good. <laughs> so the last thing, Shakar eats it, right? But Shakar, it's implied, is actually like there's some shady shit. He has a mysterious box that he's carrying around, and at one point, like Asar and Wadeen is like arguing with him, and Shakar's narration is like, "Oh, I don't know if I can trust her. Perhaps I should have shown her what was in the box." What's in the box? What's in the is box? Is it like paw wraiths? Uh, it's uh, it's um, uh, her head. <laughs> it's Shakar's head. Like, <laughs> what if it like I like I feel like the hints it's giving is that it's like paw wraiths or something, and I really don't want that to be the case. But what if it is? Oh my god! I hope they don't bring the fucking paw wraiths back. That's all dealt with. Yeah, I know. Please don't bring the paw wraiths back. Please. You bring the paw wraiths back, and that's how you get Cisco back. Oh. I mean, I bet we. I bet we see. I bet there. Uh, we see Cisco in the next three books. I mean, yeah. There's a there's a book called Unity. I assume Cisco shows up for that, right? He's on the cover of the book. Not to oh, spoil. Oh well, anything. then yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, but he is on the cover of that book. Everything is gonna like be tied up. But I'm hoping because Cisco is gonna be Cisco is gonna be there when his wife has a baby, like a hundred percent. You don't write that and not have that happen. Oh, that's why it's that's why it's been eight months. <laughs> Yeah. Suddenly worked out why the timeline went how it went. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm back on board. I so my hope is that Cisco just comes in occasionally. I don't want him back as a main character in this. Yeah, stuff, yeah, no. But I do want him to see his kid be born. He comes in, fights the Paris again, sees his kid, kisses the baby, goes back to the wormhole. We're just gonna get fucking Advent Children Parath, like briefly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then they're just immediately dealt with again. Oh, fine. I'll take this OVA bullshit. <laughs> yeah, it is hundred percent that. Oh, that's what we're gonna get. God, that's fine. Uh. <laughs> yep. the the two ciscos will come out of the wormhole together holding hands father and son again uh i mean we are one book away like after the next book the the book is called right like so we have the fun mission gamma book and then there's a book called rising sun which is supposedly like will fill in all the jake stuff uh okay and i am very very interested i bet that book's terrible <laughs> uh i don't know Rising Sun and Unity are both SD Perry, and they're both going back to the sure, stuff. Sure, but it's a book about Jake and the wormhole. I don't want any of that. <laughs> well, you're going to get it. It's going to be a whole book. It's going to deal uh, with the entire situation. You're going to fucking... Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Remember? Is it Rising Sun like S-O-N Sun? Of course it is. Good. Of co- what, are you, Good. what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. <laughs> what is God. This? You know what? You know what? It's... Look... Remember when we started Avatar Book 1 and it began with a scene of Jake like reading this awful prophecy and us thinking, oh god, these are going to be terrible. Yep. Uh, they've been alright so far, more been, or less. They've been pretty alright. And they've not been bad in that way. That was just the one fear we had that was very quickly assuaged. Yep. Uh, but, I mean, the prophecy is not fulfilled yet. Yeah, it was. What's left in the prophecy? There is the stuff about, like, when all the tears are shed, that Bajor's new destiny will dawn, blah, blah, blah. Well, the tears are now have been fully shed. <laughs> yeah, and, like, the orbs are here, but the emissary's not, and the avatar has not been born yet. Because the avatar is casting That's H on born baby. That's true. The... Oh, I'm glad that that child is going to be a kid and not going to have some destiny plot in the future. So that's it for the book. This is an alright book. I'm excited to finish up this series and fucking read something that is not DS9. Yeah, we talked about how it's in two books time, but actually after the next book, we're taking a big, long four-month break from DS9. Yep, we're going to read some real bull... Well, we're going to read the Discovery book first, and then we're going to read some real bullshit. I'm so excited for Shatterverse. You have no idea. 
Yep. No. Let's see if you think that after we read it. <laughs> uh, what are you talking? About? Okay. Does it have anything as terrible as Nimzadi? Uh, no, probably not. Like, so long as it's just the part where, of Imzadi, where fucking old Riker is carrying Data's head to chase another future Data who they're pretending to be Law, if it's that kind of bullshit and not 200 pages yelling about, like, whether the fucking is good, uh, you know, which way is it gonna fall? I know one of them's a romance. I want, yeah, the first one's a romance. Uh, there is backstory to Keeman Drozen in one of those books. Oh, <laughs> oh! Who's gonna? Re- I'm glad we watched Sarek then. Yes, no, I I'm doing this on purpose. I, I know what I'm doing. I thought we watched Sarek so we could like learn we more did. about Sarek. We did, not about but Keem also kill two birds with one stone. <laughs> about fucking Keem and Drozen, classic Star Trek character. Yeah, God. <laughs> If you have questions, you can send them to podcastabnormalmapping.com. That's the email, right? Yes. Uh, please send them in if you would like to ask to ask anything about Star Trek. But also, you can send them in about Discovery as you go. If people have reactions and want to give their takes, want to chime in with that, that will yeah, be cool. Episode, episode, episode four's uh, Discovery episode either is going up today or tomorrow yeah. as you are listening to this. If you're listening to this new. We have one question, Jackson. We got a question? Yes, I got one over Twitter. Oh, nice. Uh, at Trippy Jing asks, which Star Trek cast would you prefer to be the cast of a Star Trek dating sim? Mm. There's an instant and correct answer for this. It's, so if you're wrong, I'm... It's, I mean, it's TNG. Yeah, it's TNG, 100%. <laughs> like, it's TNG. Everyone's hot for Worf. Every... Uh, Lana. <laughs> <laughs> Lana's not listening to this. I know, but I'm gonna... <laughs> this is the most insular, deep cut. Only six people will understand this conversation. Oh, that's true. But, yeah, no, TNG in a heartbeat. <laughs> yep, everyone there is dateable, is interesting. Like, there's wrong choices. Like, you could be dating Jordy. I don't know why you would, but... That'd be a funny like, plotline, though. Yes, no, it, I, it's the one with the most infinite potential. Every character, even the guest characters that are in a couple of episodes, like Luxana and Guinan, are perfect for a dating sim. Yeah, no, TNG is, like, the actual good choice. The ridiculous choice is enterprise because i want to fucking see what a malcolm line is like god you are maybe the person most qualified to write that game i think of all people okay i thought you were gonna say you're the most you're one of the people most qualified to uh, accurately portray malcolm's dating life which would have been the meanest thing you could have said to me <laughs> no no i just like your headcanon of the enterprise people so i would very much be into you writing that game. yeah but i also have my problematic fucking uh I'm big into Archer to Pull, which I recognize as paternal and dumb. Yeah, you're, yep. Yeah, no, whatever. I'm basic sometimes. Yeah, no, that's fine. What I, what, what, we're, what my answer is, is that there's no wrong answer, unless it's a Chakotay path, which, fuck off, nobody wants Chakotay. I wonder what he is going to do in that plot line. <laughs> I wonder what possible probably, plot line. Probably consult his ancestors Ooh, and really? say something stupid. Oh, mm, weird. Strange yeah. that he would do that. Yeah. The third date is you go on, like, a vision quest together. I never knew you were going to say the words vision quest. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, he only does it, like, six times in, like, season one of that show. Uh, yeah, no. I've seen enough Voyager to see that fucking happen. And I haven't <laughs> even finished season one. Oh, uh, Chakotay sucks every day. Every day. God. 
the only episode the only episode of this podcast that ever had a title chicote sucks everything. no it's actually going for the title of every episode yep. <laughs> uh this has been a good we've had a good time talking about star trek yeah we're about to go podcast about gundam that's a good way to talk about all of our podcasts jackson what do we do for podcasts we have a bunch of shows uh if you want to find any of them they are at abnormalmapping.com if you want to find them specifically they're at specific urls we have abnormal mapping which is the game club podcast we will play a game every month there is uh, no topical discourse it's just some cool talks about video games it is welcome to all you can find that at thebestgame.club uh i do the amory score with my friend molly where we read the comics of coheed and cambria's the amory wars and listen to the songs it's a very dumb time uh the last episode that went up um was maybe the best one yet it's great the next one less good but that's not on us that one will already be up jackson by the time this podcast this podcast doesn't go up until like the eighth Oh, well, so, look, <laughs> the podcast has some ups and downs because the comic that we are covering has some real ups and downs. I'm I'm really sad knowing Mayo's not in this next episode. No, no Mayo, no Mayo. If you want to learn... But you can get the podcast at IneedMayo.com. <laughs> if you want to discover about who Mayo is and share in our joy for Mayo, because <laughs> that's not Mayonnaise, that's a character. That's Mayo Deftonwolf. Yeah. Um, Mayo Deftonwolf himself. <laughs> yep. We have The Great Gundam Project, which is a Patreon-exclusive podcast. You can get that uh, if you subscribe for over $1 a month, or $1 or more a month, I should say, at patreon.com slash abnormalmapping. We host some other podcasts, including Fireside Friends with Ryan Run. There's a, oh, there's a lot of podcasts. We're busy. Yeah. Where can people find you, specifically? At HeadfulsOff on Twitter. You can find me at em underscore being i almost said fridge buzz now which is yes, my partner's yes, 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 yes. Hoisted, <laughs> truly hoisted, hoisted it home. Yes. really weird yes oh i'm so happy um, we still have another podcast to record so yes that's it um watch some star trek listen to our discovery episodes uh tomorrow it'll already be like a week ago i get to talk about orville episode three and i'm so fucking oh, no! excited to talk about orville episode oh, three no, i you... depressed no less than two dozen people with my tweets about orville episode you three. watched that episode seven weeks ago what is something has happened to time <laughs> i'm moving back and forth through time the cursed thing is that something has happened to time is a fucking Churchill line from Doctor Who season six, and I get it confused with the TNG line. That is the most yep, no, cursed. I know you said it, and that's why I said the right one because oh. I knew you were saying a Doctor Who line, and that okay. cannot stand. There glad, are no Doctor I'm Who references you, on this I'm podcast. I'm glad you also understand the fucking curse that has been cast upon something me. Something has happened to time is a great line. The fact that it comes out of Winston Churchill's <laughs> mouth in Doctor Who makes it awful in every single way. I'm sorry, Roman Emperor Winston Churchill's mouth. Anyway, <laughs> watch some Star Trek. Enjoy your lives. See you out there. Mm-hmm.